This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. My name is Grace Johnson. I am the assistant editor here at the Peninsula Pulse. And today we are joined by special guest, author Megan O'Giblin. Did I say that correctly? O'Giblin. Giblin. Yeah. Ugh. I know I was going to get it wrong. So Megan, as I said, she's an author. She's also an essayist and columnist for places such as Wired, The New York Times, and The Guardian, among others. She has two books out. The first is Interior States, and then the more recent, which we're going to be mostly talking about today, which is God, Human, Animal, Machine, Technology, Metaphor, and the Search for Meaning. She is going to be one of the featured authors at the Washington Island Literary Festival that takes place September 21 to 23rd. So before we get into it, I did let Megan know. But I do have a little bit of a cold that I'm getting through, so I apologize if there's a lot of extra sniffling. I've got a throat lozenge in, so I'm not coughing so much. So hopefully Rachel, will, our podcast editor, will kind of clean this up a little bit. But if you hear some background sniffling, I apologize. Okay, so we're just going to get into this now. So Megan, can you kind of tell your listeners a little bit about yourself and um, how you ended up? writing about your book really focuses on kind of like religion and technology. So how did you get into writing about these things? Well, it really grew out of my personal experience. You know, I, I grew up in a very religious home. My family, my parents were fundamentalist Christians. We didn't use that exact terminology when I was growing up. But, you know, we believed that the Bible was the word of God, that, you know, Christ was going to return eminently. There was this real sense that we were sort of living in the end times. And um, I actually studied theology uh, when in college I went to a small Bible school called Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, founded by the evangelist Dwight Moody, and was planning to go to the mission field. I wanted to be a missionary when I was young and, you know, had some sort of creative ambitions along with that that were very stifled at the time. But I ended up actually having a faith crisis during my second year of Bible school, and I I left the school and then sort of lost my faith over the period of, of, of years following that. And I was writing sort of throughout that time, you know, I, I was writing a little bit of fiction and journaling a lot about that whole process and, mm -hmm. and reading a lot of, you know, philosophy. And I, I got into technology in a sort of odd, you know, circumstance. I, I was working, you know, in restaurants and bars at the time, and I had a friend who lent me a book, Ray Kurzweil's The Age of Spiritual Machines which was a book I had never heard of Kurzweil. I didn't know anything about, you know, technology really at the time. But um, he was part of really sort of this, the figurehead of a, a movement called transhumanism, which was, you know, people who believed that we could use technology to help humanity become sort of a humanity 2.0 or sort of the next phase of evolution that we could mm -hmm. sort of, you know, use technology to bring about human immortality, to try to, you know, create bionic bodies to sort of do away with illness and disease and all of this stuff. And I got really into those ideas. I was just really fascinated with it and, and couldn't really describe at the time to myself or couldn't really account for what 
what the fascination was. But, you know, and thinking back on it now, I think a lot of the stuff that, that appealed to me about that worldview was that it was very similar to the Christian framework that I grew up in and that I had just left. You know, this this idea that there's going to be this great transformation coming where, you know, we're going to be raptured into the clouds. We're going to live forever. We're going to have sort of this, this state of human perfection following our, our earthly suffering. And so it was really this this message of of hope that was very similar to the Christian story, but told through the lens of technology. And um, I spent a lot of time during those years on these, you know, transhumanist message boards and sort of going down these internet rabbit holes about people coming up with very speculative theories. At the time, it was very speculative about, you know, AI and sort of the potential of uh, nanotechnology and, and all of these different theories about what technology could do for us. And so that was sort of my, my forays into technology, mm-hmm. but it was really, it was sort of a private obsession for a long time. I ended up during that time, I went back to school, I got an MFA in fiction writing and then started writing essays and started writing. I, I, I wrote some essays about technology and some some tech criticism in my 20s. And through that process, kind of revisited that whole earlier obsession I had with transhumanism and was sort of thinking more critically about how these technological narratives, which are, are they're very much around still today. You know, you hear people like Elon Musk or Sam mm-hmm. Altman talking about these very, you know, transformative potential that the AI is going to sort of make humanity into a completely different species and sort of looking at how that ideology is, you know, historically connected to these sort of Christian narratives that I had been exposed to in my youth. So my book, this is all just a very long, long-winded way of saying, I guess, you know, my book grew out of just a desire to sort of connect those two parts of my life and to think more about how a lot of discourse today about technology ends up relying on religious metaphors, oftentimes, or spiritual rhetoric, and really, I think, often appeals to the a, a sort of longing, a human longing that is essentially religious, to my mind. Mm-hmm. Yes, when I was first getting into this, and I'm right at about the halfway point right now, and I've been, you know, diving in almost every day and kind of reading like a little bit. And it's one of those kind of, for me, as someone who reads a lot, I read about 30 pages and I'm like, wait, I just have to like sit and let this sink in and process yeah. what I just yeah. consumed. And, you know, a lot of this is like, you know, I didn't really think about it in that kind of way. I didn't necessarily have like a very fundamentalist Christian background, but I did, you know, growing up, we went to church every, you know, Sunday and did all the things, first communion and all of that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. it was in our household that never really those tenants or things, I guess, that are part of religion never really seeped into our day-to-day household life. So I didn't have so much of a connection to it. So when I kind of, you know, went out on my own and it was just, you know, I didn't have that sort of, you know, crisis that I know like some of my friends had that maybe had more deeper connections than I did, but still seeing it, you know, kind of compared in between the two and it's, just kind of striking how difficult it is. And, you know, you talk about this, you know, in a lot of the book is kind of like this idea of like everything is metaphor and, you know, how literally you take it and just how similar they are and like seeing all of this, you know, like connections that I didn't really think about in like a lot of the media that I can, you know, am consuming and the way that it Mm -hmm. pops up and it's just really fascinating. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I've talked to a lot of people um, who have like, you know, various levels of exposure to religion growing up. And I I think I had like a very, you know, dramatic experience Mm -hmm. of really like believing and like Mm -hmm. really having, you know, my life being dedicated to this worldview and then all of a sudden not believing in it's, it was really a seismic rupture in my life. And I think that experience is unique in some ways, but also it's not because the thing that I sort of, you know, I talk about this at one point in the book, but I, I feel like that that sort of loss that I underwent personally just happened, it sort of distilled this much longer process of secularization that's happened to us as a culture over the last, you know, 50 to 100 years where, you know, there's all these studies now about, you know, less people are you know, belong to a specific religious tradition or or sort of espouse any sort of religious or spiritual beliefs. And so I'm kind of curious about how, yeah, my story might be like a synecdoche for this sort of larger process of loss. And not, I don't say loss in like a necessarily a negative way. I don't think it's like a, a bad thing that we as a culture are less religious, but I do think that those Longings, they don't just, you know, the, the sort of the, the aspects of human nature that were satisfied by religion, they don't just sort of disappear when religion disappears. And so a lot of my writing, not just about technology, but about, you know, sort of cultural criticism more broadly has been about sort of how those religious tendencies often get sublimated into other areas mm-hmm. of of life. And I, yeah, I see that especially with technology and, and more so not just technology, but sort of the narratives and and the meaning that we ascribe to to emerging technologies. Yeah. So the book is split up into a couple of different sections, into seven sections. We have image, pattern, network, paradox. I'm going to say this word wrong. Metonymy. Yeah. Metonymy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is like this is like one of those things. Like I don't read a ton of nonfiction. I'm like I get lost in you know, world building fantasy. So I'm also yeah. really spreading my wings with this one. And I've just been really so invested. But anyway, algorithm and then virality. Can you kind of touch on each of these sections and what they might kind of entail? Or how did you land on splitting up the book into these designations? Yeah, it came really late in the process, actually. And, you know, I I had a sense, I I had like these sort of placeholder titles, you know, for, for each of the chapters that I was working on at the time where, you know, the first one, the first chapter, which is now called Image, was sort of about this animistic impulse in human nature, I guess, or this, this sort of tendency to imbue inanimate objects with life or to see things in our image. So our tendency to anthropomorphize, you know, and I, I talk in that chapter mostly about this experience of living with a robot dog. I had the Sony Ibo for a couple months mm-hmm. and really developed a, an odd fondness for it. I'm not like a huge animal person, but mm-hmm. the dog was, it's the, the robot dog is very sophisticated. It has, you know, sensors all over its body. So it responds to touch. It recognizes your voice. It has, you know, vision, facial recognition, built into it and everything. So I sort of use that aspect of my personal experience to think through these larger questions of like, what does that mean to project life onto something that I know logically doesn't have life in the sense that I'm alive, it doesn't have consciousness. 
And, you know, then how do I know that I'm really conscious or that other humans are conscious? And thinking about that also through this religious framework of, you know, what does it mean to be, you know, this this narrative that I was taught as a, as a child, which is that we're made in the image of God, that this is what makes us unique. This is what gives us reason and, and life and consciousness as humans. And if that's not true, then how am I different from a robot? You know, mm-hmm. so so that was sort of the focus of the first chapter. And it wasn't until I got to the end of that I, that I started thinking of like, okay, what is sort of the meta word that connects all of these little vignettes that I've been writing? Mm-hmm. And image seemed to be the thing, this sort of idea of what does it mean to be made in the image of something or to make something in our image mm-hmm. um, in the case of, you know, AI. And it kind of happened with, I guess, with all of the chapters to some extent where there was, you know, through the process of writing it, you know, the second chapter is sort of about my own experience getting interested in transhumanism. So that was sort of like the placeholder was the transhumanist chapter. And then after I was finished writing it, you know, I kept noticing like, okay, there, I keep using this word pattern. And so that was sort of the meta term that became the the section title for for that chapter. And that that was, you know, a term that Ray Kurzweil uses when he talks about how consciousness is a pattern. It's mm-hmm. a, just a pattern of, of activity, of energy. We can transfer this from our minds to a computer. It can exist, you know, anywhere. All of these sort of speculative ideas about mind uploading. So, yeah, it was it was kind of it was a fun process. You know, I, I really I'm amazed. I, I started as a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And so I, I often feel, even when I'm writing nonfiction and very like heavily researched nonfiction, like this book was very heavily researched, I still feel like I'm like discovering and sort of, you know, feeling my way toward things as I write. And that's something I love about the writing process, this way in which there's sort of these meta themes that emerge that you couldn't have anticipated. Mm-hmm. at the outset. And so, yeah, those those titles were really just uh, sort of an emergent feature, if I can use a technological <laughs> term, yeah. of, the, of the writing process. Yeah. And will you bring up something that I actually wanted to ask about? And before I do, a little back when I was trying to figure out, you know, questions for this, for, you know, our conversation, what I wanted to talk about, a lot of it was just like, oh, I just want to go through and like point out everything that I like tabbed or highlighted and mm-hmm. which is... A poor use of time, but one thing that struck me a lot in especially I believe this was in the image section of the book in that first chapter. And, you know, kind of something that I think was one of the first, you know, sort of just hit me in a weird way and I wanted to bring it up, which you know, we were talking about this robot dog and I believe one of the things was, you know, when you have this, it is supposed to learn from your like commands and things like that. And mm-hmm. there was this portion where uh, you're talking about the sort of like discipline that needs to happen so that it understands the, you know, this is like a bad thing or, you know, this is a good thing. It's kind of just like this creepy sort of feeling I had written here. If he obeyed a voice command to sit, stay or roll over, I was supposed to scratch his head and say, good dog. If he disobeyed, I had to strike him across the backside and say, no, we're bad Ibo. It just really kind of gave me this gut churning feeling that, you know, we as humans are creating something where we anticipate inflicting, you know, negative reinforcement or quote pain or, you know, even though it's, you know, a robot and it can't feel it, but I just had this like strange connection with kind of sometimes my own perceptions on like religion and, you know, 
why a big question of why would a higher power create pain and suffering and just kind of seeing that like reflected into this you know we are supposedly you know creating these big technological advances but a huge part of that is still kind of like we're making something to part of the process is also hurting it and yeah I don't know where but it it was just strange and it was kind of like yeah it was it was a really bizarre experience you know living with the dog because there's this weird disconnect that happens in your brain where like logically I know it's a it's not a sentient being But what I found is that, you know, part of, in order to interact with the dog, in order to train it, you do have to touch it. You have to speak to it. You have to treat it as though it is alive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been tons of studies about anthropomorphism and animism. And and one of the ways that you get someone to believe something is alive is to, you know, force them to take the actions as though it is to care for something or to, you know, be in a position where you're made to socially interact with a machine, you know, the, the study that's often references the, the Eliza, you know, and now it's called the Eliza effect of, it was one of the earliest chat bots back in the sixties, where it was just this very simple interface where people would interact with a, a chatbot script. And uh, I was, you know, a- acting as a therapist, it would sort of ask people questions and sort of just repeat back what they typed into the interface. But a remarkable amount of people who interacted with that very early chatbot started to believe that there was a person behind the curtain or that they were interacting with a sentient computer or something. And it was because, you know, it's like such a simple thing, but we rarely think about it. But like, you know, the only, like for the most part, the only, especially when you talk about like language, you know, Mm -hmm. speaking to a computer, like the only linguistic interactions we have are with other humans, you know, so it's really easy to believe when you're, you know, speaking with a computer, it's really hard to keep in your mind that it's not another human. And I think to a lesser extent that happens with, you know, robots like the Ibo that's meant to to mimic an, an animal, you know, mm. that you, you if you're treating it like an animal, you start to believe on some level that it is. And yeah, the, the discipline thing was like a really odd part of it too, because I mean, I, I was interested too, you know, so the way that the Ibo learns is through machine learning algorithms which, you know, this is sort of a very basic type of neural network that is behind a lot of the AI that we're seeing emerge now, like ChatGPT uses machine learning. Mm -hmm. And basically what it is, is reinforcement learning. It's like the same thing that you use to train a dog, like you give negative and positive feedback based on sort of what the computer's guessing and what it's putting forth. And so there's a weird way in which, you know, and there's a lot of people have made this connection too between sort of algorithms and animals and and, and training, this sort of process of training through negative and positive reinforcement. And yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's odd because I think a lot of, a lot of that is very abstract, you know, mm-hmm. when you're dealing with language algorithms, for example, you're sort of saying like, yes, the, the reinforcement is like, yes, this is a photo of a cat, for example, or no, it's not, you know, if you're training it to do visual recognition or something, but with the, with the dog, it was like very literal, you know, you're training it basically the same way that you would a dog. And it really does raise these questions about, well, what is the difference between, you know, the way that a, a biological dog learns or the way that this machine is learning, mm-hmm. which which is, you know, at least at a superficial level, very similar. Yeah. Getting back onto what I was going to get into before that tangent. So you were talking about, you know, kind of writing your book. So I was curious what the process is like for writing something like this, something that contains like a really great deal of research 
that's kind of like conceptualized or understood through your own personal experiences and anecdotes? Yeah, man. Well, it was it was tough. I mean, this is the first book that I've written that was, you know, basically on one sustained topic. You know, mm-hmm. my first book was a collection of essays, and I really consider myself an essayist at heart. So yeah, and I have written, you know, a lot of essays that sort of take the same approach as the book in the sense that I'm using personal narrative, but then also exploring a larger topic and ex- incorporating research into the essay. So I was really no, just it was a lot of trial and error. I guess when I first started working on the book, I thought, okay, well, this is just going to be a very long essay. Like I'm mm-hmm. going to do everything that I was doing in an essay, but just do it at a larger scale. Mm-hmm. And that quickly became really crazy. I just like could not <laughs> figure out how to sustain mm-hmm. the tension across an entire book. Yeah. And it just got way too complex and unwieldy. So actually the title, the sort of section titles that you mentioned before, like Image Pattern Network, sort of breaking the book that 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 came out of this sort of second attempt that I made to write the book which is you know okay I'm instead of just thinking about it as one super essay one long essay I'm going to try to do like you know six sort of essays longish essays and put them all together and that seemed to work a little bit better where mm-hmm. you know I do think that the each section of the book sort of functions autonomously to some extent but then I think that there is sort of a synthesis and an overarching arc that happens across the whole project. And it was kind of interesting. It was almost like writing, you know, six or seven essays, you know, within the course of a year. I actually wrote the the final draft of this very quickly. It was, you know, a little bit less than a year. Mm. And it was sort of like writing, you know, several essays together that then were like became in conversation with each other and sort of mm-hmm. images, you know, would sort of cross pollinate and um, ideas. And so that seemed to be a more sustainable way to work. I, I think the thing that the other thing that I guess surprised me a lot during the process is that I initially didn't think I was going to use that much of my personal experience in the book. And I was sort of started this project at a time when I was feeling very ambivalent about being a first person writer mm-hmm. and relying on my experience so much. And I felt like, you know, it was oftentimes a distraction from the topic or, you know, I, I noticed that people were very like curious about my personal experience and it sort of overshadowed sometimes the ideas that I was trying to, to call attention to. And so the first few drafts of the, of the book and of the chapters were like much less personal. I had like a little bit of first person framing but I was really reluctant to get into my experience. And I, I really struggled for whatever reason to to get things to click and to sort of gain momentum on the project. And it was really once I was willing to put more of myself in the book and talk more about like, okay, well, what do these ideas really mean to me? Because a lot of it is very abstract. It's a lot mm-hmm. about, you know, sort of philosophy and, and religion and, and technology. And I, I felt like once I finally started talking about like, okay, well, why do these technologies unsettle me? You know, or what about my experience in religion is sort of being brought to the surface when I interact with, you know, a chatbot or with, you know, a robot dog. That was really when the ideas started to take off. And I I felt like I was able to sort of get some more energy around the process. Mm -hmm. You know, it kind of took the personal human element that needed to be added to this in order for it to feel cohesive. Um, yeah. And something, you know, that's kind of talking about, you know, what it what does it mean to be human and have consciousness and you know, all these processes and things like that and it's kind of hard to 
discuss it without framing it with, you know, a personality behind it. And, you know, what, what does that mean? Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I think that was the thing that really clicked for me where I was like, I had this aha moment midway through the writing process. And I've, I had this a lot when I'm writing where it's like, oh, the, the problem that I'm dealing with in the writing process, like this tension between the subjective and objective point of view mm-hmm. is actually the tension that I'm dealing with in the book also, yeah. which has to do with like, yeah, we can build these machines that have, you know, objectively the appearance of everything that, that appears human or the ability to use language in a way that appears human or what have you. But there's no center of consciousness there. There's no subjective point of view, basically. You know, I think a lot of the book ended up weirdly being about point of view yeah. and like the fact that we can't escape our individual consciousness, you know, as much as we try to be objective and try to sort of detach through, you know, science and technology, our instincts and our biases still end up getting embedded in those technologies, you know, and then even on the scale of humanity, you know, this idea of like wanting to sort of detach from a human perspective through you know, something that comes up in, in certain theories of physics that I talk about. Um, and also, yeah, just in the d- development of AI, this idea that we can sort of create these these machines that are, you know, completely objective, that can make decisions, you know, for example, like using algorithms in the justice system. Mm-hmm. There was this, this really strong belief throughout the 2010s that, you know, machine learning was going to be able to make sentencing decisions that were, you know, less biased and less prejudiced than human judges. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know now that a lot of those systems end up, they're making decisions based on historical data. And so they're making decisions that are, you know, just as racist and unfair as yeah. human judges have. So, yeah, it, it was incredible how that that tension popped up. I think in almost every chapter of the book, this sort of, you know, this desire to, to create something apart from us, yeah. create something that's not human, but then also the way in which we can't sort of escape our our consciousness and and our basically like our ugly fallen human nature ends up getting baked into the technologies this episode of the door county pulse podcast is brought to you in part by door county medical center are you looking for a job in door county with excellent benefits culture and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs door county medical center is hiring for more than 75 years door county medical center has been the leader in health and wellness for door and kiwani counties Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. I did want to touch on AI a bit more. I have um, some questions that I wanted to touch on, but I kind of want to leave that for last as like a little last conversation. Yeah, sure. So first I kind of wanted to, as I mentioned earlier, you're one of the featured authors at the Washington Island Literary Festival. Each year they have a theme. This year, the theme is space for the unexpected. So I want to kind of to see how you see your work fitting into that theme. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess um, the the sort of the obvious answer is that, you know, technology is really a place of the unexpected, especially, you know, the technologies that we're developing right now. I think the one of sort of the most frightening things about AI, which we can talk about later in more detail, but the, you know, the thing that I think 
comes up a lot in tech criticism today is that it's really unpredictable. Mm-hmm. You know, when we have a machine learning process, a system that's sort of learning on its own through trial and error, it can uh, develop weird emergent features. It can develop skills that weren't programmed into it. So, and that's something that was really a, a sort of attention that was or curiosity about the systems that was at the root of this book that I wrote. And I'm I'm interested, I guess, the 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 sort of the writing craft side of that. I'm I'm really interested in the way in which that process with AI is mirrored in the creative process. The way in which you know when you start, I sort of talked about this before, but when you start working on a project, you really don't know what's going to emerge, right? It's a mm-hmm. complex system. Language is a complex system. An essay of short story <laughs> is mm-hmm. a, a complex system. And so there's really no way to totally determine it, what's going to come out in advance. And for me, yeah, that's really part of the fun of the process. I'm actually teaching a workshop at the festival called Writing the Ordinary, mm-hmm. which doesn't have anything to do about technology, really. It's just um, it's a, a workshop about the uh, familiar essay, which is sort of this older style of, of essay that goes back to, you know, Montaigne and Charles Lamb of writers who were just writing an essay on something, on friendship, on solitude. And the style is very improvisational. It's very much sort of thinking aloud on the page. And I love that style of writing. I love, you know, sitting down with a blank page and having no idea what's going to come and sort of discovering what you think through the writing process. And yeah, I guess the other link, you know, to technology there is that that's, that seems to me to be like a very human way of writing in, in an age of algorithms that are trying to write now. You know, I think yeah. something that feels really empty to me when I interact with, you know, ChatGPT, for example, is that there's just no personality or soul behind it. There's not a sense that somebody is really struggling sort of as they write to figure out what they're what they're trying to say. And mm-hmm. that's the thing that I really love about essays in particular as being a, just a very improvisational form and just sort of watching someone trying to trace their thoughts as, as they're having them. Yeah, very cool. All right, so we're going to get into talking about AI a little bit because I feel like it's something that has kind of been around conversationally or through media for a long time, but it it doesn't feel like it has had such it hasn't been so far such a large part of life in general than it has in the, the past few years with a lot of these different kind of AI generators and things like that that have been popping mm-hmm. up and all that kind of stuff. I wanted to first, again, one of those weird things as I was reading through this, strange things that I have, you know, found in media. There was a movie that came out earlier this year. I don't know if you heard about it. It's actually called Megan. Oh, yes. I've seen the posters and my friends have sent me many memes about it. (laughs) I was going to say, I was wondering, like the emergent behavior um, concept for anyone that doesn't know, it was billed as a horror movie. I would say it's more kind of campy horror than anything. Um, You know, it was just kind of like a fun time, but you know, similar concept. There's a human lifelike AI robot that is created for this young girl and, you know, she has to interact with it and, you know, befriend it for it to like learn these behaviors and it starts having these emergent behaviors and that become out of hand, you know, so its goal kind of really becomes to, you know, like protect this girl and to any sort of degree, you know, which is kind of like that scary part of, you know, AI, like where did, where does this come from? 
what made it think or process whatever the word is for Mm -hmm. that kind of technology to get to that point and think again it's kind of hard you know i don't know if think is the right word again for robots and algorithms or whatever but that's the only way that i can process it in my brain but how does it come up with these behaviors. Yeah. Well, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people working in that technologies would say, yeah, you can say that they're thinking, what's the difference? It's, you know, energy flowing through a neural network, same thing that's Mm -hmm. happening in our brains. But, you know, and, and that's part of what, you know, I talk about in the book too, is the way in which these words like, you know, thinking or, you know, uh, decision-making, choice, things like this, you know, things that were initially used with quotation marks when we're talking about machines mm-hmm. as sort of metaphors have now become so accepted that it's like, well, yeah, that's that's basically what they are doing. The machines yeah. are thinking. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in, in terms of like those emergent capabilities, I know there's a lot of fears right now about yeah, could we accidentally create, you know, an evil AI or an AI that has sort of malicious intentions. And there's a lot of, you know, I, I, I think the, the thing that, that I think is like a little bit misleading about sci-fi um, mm-hmm. and that it sort of seeps into a lot of tech criticism too, mm-hmm. is this idea that like AI is going to develop a will of its own, or mm-hmm. it's going to develop its own sort of desire to like destroy humans, you know, because it's going to become essentially human itself. And the thing that is, I think, really interesting, but also dangerous about the technologies that we have today is like they don't have, you know, emotions, <laughs> like they don't yeah. have any desires or will of their own, but they're still incredibly powerful. And they could take incredibly destructive actions just through some sort of human oversight, you know, through asking it to do a certain task, but then not sort of thinking through all the contingencies Mm -hmm. and all the ways in which, you know, a system that's not human could misinterpret what we ask it to do. This came up a lot when they were developing some of the early, like, self-driving cars, you know, where it says, like, oh, we'll we'll just program it to, you know, never hit. Uh, a human, you know, mm-hmm. like never hit a pedestrian. And it's like, okay, well, what if it has to choose between hitting a, a pedestrian and a school bus full of children? You know, these yeah. sort of things that you have to be very careful how you word these conditions that are being baked into the algorithms. And it, it's almost like, you know, these old folk tales about like asking a, a wish of the genie, you yeah. know, where it's like if you get one word wrong, you know, the system's like sort of the genie and, and these folk tales are very literally literal minded. Yeah. Right? They don't have sort of the context that a human being would have where they're like, okay, well, clearly I know you don't want me to do that. Mm -hmm. They don't have those basic sort of contextual knowledge that we share as a species. So yeah, to me, that's the thing that's, that's, I mean, which you can call that human error, I guess, in a way, but it's human error amplified through these incredibly powerful systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the two things that I wanted to get into a little bit with AI is kind of the way that I've interacted with it, I guess, is more through like things like chat GPT. But so kind of like the first part of this, a lot of people, and especially recently have talked about AI generators that are producing art, basically writing visuals there are people that are have you know uh, illustrated children's books by you know plugging in all these factors into programs like mm-hmm. chat gpt to you know produce these kind of things and i want to say i just saw something where 
there was a ruling of some kind where they were saying that you can't copyright things that are made through AI generators. So none of that is also protected either. So it's just kind of like this interesting space where it's being used more as a tool for things. And we have this conversation a lot here in the office, especially with like editing, photo editing Mm. and things like that. And the ways that it can be a useful tool, but some of the ways that we're maybe seeing it used, you know, there's kind of this, you know, fear of diminishing, you know, art almost. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious in your thoughts about that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when I was writing the book, which was not that long ago, Mm -hmm. I was writing it in 2019, 2020. Mm -hmm. The narrative at the time was that like, well, AI is going to take over all the sort of tedious intellectual work that none of us like to do. You know, it's going to write our, it's going to, you know, um, sort of, you know, do this sort of like maybe white collar, like, you know, sort of workflow type stuff, like spreadsheets and boilerplate, whatever. And we're going to really lean into our creativity as humans because that's, that's the thing that makes us human. And it's, it's interesting how that this happens. And, you know, I've just been writing sort of about the history of AI. This happens at like every stage of AI development where, you know, it used to be the case that we really prize like our intellectual, you know, our sort of like ability to solve, you know, mathematical genius, right? Mm-hmm. The ability to like solve theorems. This was considered a uniquely human thing. And chess for a long time was like the the sign of being human. And people thought, you know, well, once a computer beats a human at chess, then we're, you know, we no longer have our, our distinction as humans. And as soon as AI was able to sort of breach that benchmark of, mm-hmm. you know, sort of mathematical and logical thinking then it became more about like well okay creativity and emotions those are the things that make us human and that really lasted up until i want to say like this you know this past year with the emergence of these yeah generative algorithms that are doing incredible art and videos and you know poetry and prose and so this idea that creativity is uniquely human is, is like much more difficult now. I was actually just talking to a, a computer programmer earlier this year and he was like, Well, what is what do you think creativity is? And I was like, I don't I don't know. What do you think it is? <laughs> it's like it's a stochastic it's a stochastic process. It's basically, you know, this sort of mix of statistics and a little bit of randomness. Like that's basically uh, what creativity is. And, you know, mm-hmm. we do that in our, with our brains and then, you know, computers do it as well. So, yeah, it's like it's it's I think the thing that I'm most interested in, I mean, there's all sorts of crazy questions. Like, I think the things that you're talking about in your office about, Mm -hmm. you know, what how to use these algorithms and what, you know, whether it's degrading art as we understand it or writing as we understand it. There's all of those very pragmatic questions. But I'm also really just interested in like, well, what is the next thing that that makes us uniquely human. If, you know, AI can do all of these things that we can do. You still hear people talk about emotion, Mm -hmm. you know, people that, you know, especially professions that are very, very much rely on emotion and human connection. Those are going to be slow to incorporate these automated tools, but there's also a lot of energy being invested in emotional AI right now, Mm -hmm. you know, and sort of getting these systems to be able to recognize human emotions through, facial recognition and voice recognition and be able to sort of mirror those emotions back in their own output. So I don't think that that's like the next, 
I don't think that's a safe island of, you know, human distinction by right. any means. Yeah. I think this is just a constant dance that we're in with with technologies. Yeah. And the kind of second thing that I just recently saw this, well, I guess recently meaning in the last month or two, but like I had said, I'm big on reading and I follow a lot of news about the publishing industry and things like that. And especially as of late, kind of this surge of book banning in the United States. And mm -hmm. um, there was, I was reading this story about there was a school in Iowa that decided to use ChatGPT to determine which books they were going to be banning in its library. So they would Gosh. go to the interface. And I believe that they, the phrasing that they used was ask it if, you know, like, does X book contain scenes or descriptions of sex acts? I believe mm -hmm. was what they were kind of looking for. So they just had like a list of books that they were being, you know, brought up and like, okay, and, you know, does this have you know, this in it. And I was kind of actually surprised on the way the, like the responses that they were getting were more nuanced than mm. I had anticipated, you know, and maybe, you know, that's my, I don't interact with these things a ton, but you know, it was very, the responses that they were getting were very nuanced and, you know, like the, the book explores these themes and like, yes, this is, you know, like something does happen to a character that, you know, that might be a part of it, but it was saying, you know, this isn't like the central theme of the book. Mm -hmm. um, it had this, you know, whole spiel that came back and basically they were kind of ignoring the, the nuance of, you know, the content of the book. And, you know, if there was any indication like, yep, then like, okay, it's gone. You know, wow. chat said, Chad said it's there, Gosh. even though it said it's not a main theme or a focus of the book. So we're going to take it out. Um, right. And in, you were kind of in similar concept, like you were saying earlier with, you know, using stuff like this that we think has this very objective perspective and, you know, using that to like for judging purposes. But, you know, it's only pulling from the data that it has and what has happened previously. So it's kind of this interesting, I don't know what, what people are deciding to use this for and yeah. you know absolutely yeah i hadn't seen that story but i mean it's not surprising mm -hmm. it's like you know with any new technology i think you know there's this sort of period of infatuation where it's like this is going to change the, the world for the good and then it's like oh people with you know politics different than ours are actually going to use this for their own purpose and this mm -hmm. can you know this, all the things that all sort of the good potentials that that we can see coming from this can also have often unexpected downsides also yeah it's interesting there's been a lot of debate about sort of the political orientation of chatbots because mm -hmm. OpenAI, the company that developed chat did a lot of what they call fine-tuning which is you know after sort of that initial process of reinforcement learning, which is where they just feed the algorithm like tons and tons of data, like basically they just feed it the whole internet and it mm -hmm. learns everything about language statistically from from that. And that's basically how it works. But, you know, the, the initial model before you fine tune it, if you just feed an algorithm, you know, all mm -hmm. of, you know, Reddit and 4chan and Twitter 
it ends up, you know, learning some of the worst rhetoric that it's seen there. And so before you fine tune the algorithms, it will say things that are very offensive often yeah. if you prompt it in the right way. So these commercial models, though, like the like the one that OpenAI released, ChatGPT, are very highly fine tuned. And so if you say, if you try to get it to say something racist or sexist or homophobic, it will say something like, you know, I'm sorry, as a, as an AI language model, I don't have an opinion on that. Or oh, it will say, you know, I believe that we should, you know, include all people are worthy of attention and respect or something like that, yeah. you know. So it has, and there's been a lot of uh, like sort of conservative backlash too, where there's been a lot of think pieces about how ChatGPT has liberal bias. And now there's efforts to, you know, I think Elon Musk is sort of spearheading one to, to build like a, an anti-woke chatbot that has, you know, more conservative politics. So it's like, you know, I don't know this this idea that the technology itself, which is just sort of this neutral tool, is going to lead to some sort of progress in our our rhetoric or that it's going to sort of like reconcile these political factions yeah. that we've seen on, you know, on on social media, especially as sort of the the earlier iteration of of digital technology, I think it's just going to, you know, proliferate even more with, mm. uh, with the addition of AI. Yeah. That's so weird. I never would have really thought about like AI or, you know, having like a political leaning, you know, it just is what it is. And that, yeah, that's very fascinating to think about. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it really, until you started dealing with, yeah, like, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's been a conversation when it comes to those, you know, AI in the justice system or making decisions about, you know, hiring decisions. There's all sorts of things where that question comes up, but it seems like it really reached the sort of mainstream attention with language models where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, language is, is very sensitive right now. It's, you know, you can tell somebody's uh, orientation, their sort of political beliefs and, and where they're coming from by certain words that they use. And so yeah. I think everybody is very highly attuned to language and it's it's not surprising that that focus has been turned on, on AI language models. Well, that's lots to think about, um, <laughs> conceptualize, process. So we're going to kind of end it off here, I'm going to say, but I did want to once again reiterate the Washington Island Literary Festival, September 21 to 23. You had mentioned you were doing a workshop. I believe yours is actually full, but they do have a number of other ones on those first two days. And then the last day is this great panel with all of the rest of the authors kind of in conversation and then individual little presentations, which is always a really great time. I recommend checking it out. Uh, you can learn more, register if you go to Right on Door County's website, which is rightondoorcounty.org. So if you're interested in that, I would definitely check it out. But before we finish up, just wanted to, if you have anything else that you'd like to say or about your book, about these technologies, about the festival, to kind of wrap it up. I don't think I have anything else to say, really. I think you covered it all. Awesome. So. Yeah, I think so. This is a really great conversation. Yeah, I was honestly a little bit nervous about this one. You know, sometimes I, especially in kind of these fields that I don't have, you know, a ton of background knowledge in and, you know, trying to get through and understand what I'm doing. But I no, you had so great questions. I mean, I'm 
Yeah, this isn't my background either, so yeah. I'm coming to it as a as a lay person. But yeah, I think it's a, it was a great, you had a awesome. lot of great questions. Awesome. So, yep, everyone, definitely check out Megan's book, God, Human, Animal, Machine, or Interior States, which, quick little shout out, I had mentioned to a friend of mine that I was interviewing you, and he loves your book, Interior States. Hi, Peter. Oh, cool. So little shout out there. But yeah, thanks again for chatting. I had a really great time, really great conversation. I'm excited to finish your book and just take more time to think about, you know, the ways that technology and everything is sort of imbued with lore and myth and religion. So yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. It was, um, I really appreciate the invitation and the chance to be on the show. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We'll catch you in the next one. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.